mind I like to speak about the truth yet the truth cannot be spoken of so I will be lying and I will try to do it truthfully There is a story in India about Ashwagosha, very great Indian or Hindu logician and writer who <coughs> certainly lived by the 6th century and was traveling in the north of India and was debating with the teacher that he would meet in every place where he would go. And the consequences were very important because the one who would lose he had to convert himself to the belief of the other as well as all his disciples. So one will not engage into spiritual discussion lightly one first time to be very well prepared because it was a matter of great consequence. Ashwag Gosha was going around and Repeating all the teachers that he was meeting. He was quite feared. Then one day he came to Nalanda Monastery, the great Buddhist monastery, where there was one teacher of his great <coughs> reputation. So he came to him and started to debate. He was with a surrounding of about 500 disciples. So he came to the Buddhist teacher and started to argue with him. But this teacher kept silent. Vajvagosha kept on speaking to him, making questions, making answers. And then he got tired of this teacher who was not speaking. So he told him, I wonder why you have such a high reputation. You cannot answer the smallest of my questions. And he left with all his disciples. He thought it was hopeless to debate with this Buddhist teacher. So he was going out of Nalanda, maybe to Patna, to nearby, and while walking with all his disciples, suddenly he was reviewing all the debate in his head, and he thought, well, actually, many things I said can be defeated, but there is not much about the other teacher that can be defeated. So he went back to him and said, actually, that he acknowledged his wisdom. So he said, well, my head should be chopped off saying so many stupid things. <coughs> and the Buddhist teacher, who was compassionate, of course, said, no, it's not your head that you have to cut off, but it is your grasping and your view. So you see, this uh, Buddhist teacher was wise, he kept silent. So tonight I will speak and you keep silent. But please don't cut my head off at the end. It is interesting in the traditional teaching of the Buddha that he is teaching the third truth before the fourth. He is teaching the truth of cessation, the end of all the Buddhist paths, 
before teaching the past. Maybe it's slightly strange. We may imagine that we teach the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the path, and then where this path will lead to the cessation of suffering. Yet he is teaching the third one before the fourth, teaching the cessation, nirvana or the unconditioned, before explaining the path leading to it. And we'll consider this aspect which is certainly very interesting in the teaching of the Buddha. In India, <coughs> just after the death of the Buddha, there was no statue. He was never represented for about 500 years, never shown into any human form. It is only at the beginning of the Christian area that some statues started to appear, maybe due to some foreign influence, like a Greek influence. When around the big monument they would for example, tell the life story of the Buddha, then they will just symbolize his presence by footprint, by a tree, by a wheel, or by a stupa. So you see sometimes the life story of the Buddha told, and you just recognize, oh, that's the Buddha because there's a footprint, or there's a tree, or the wheel, or the stupa. It is quite, quite interesting. Finally, the stupa stood out and took a very specific meaning because when the Buddha died they burned his body and then gathered the ashes and put them in a stupa, in a stupa. So he started to symbolize the final awakening of the Buddha when nothing is left of his body of all what could have been conditioned. His bodily form was conditioned so when he died, there was no more conditioning. So the supa started to represent this aspect of the Buddha, his awakened mind, without any conditioning left. In the Tibetan tradition, in any temple, usually the Buddha is shown on his three aspects, body, speech, and mind. The body is shown with a statue or painting, the speech by the scripture and the mind by a stupa. So in any Tibetan temple usually you will find always the three elements. The stupa is a very interesting building. If some of you have met some like in India, in Sanchi for example, which is one of the oldest stupa. It is quite a shape like that actually huge, made out of stone, and inside, in the middle, there is maybe some precious box made out of gold or silver, in which there may be some ashes of some holy people, if they had some holy people to burn at the time and to put in the stupa. <laughs> and then it's completely <coughs> filled with stone and earth, and one cannot go inside. It's always amazing <coughs> when getting to a stupa because most of the time beginners look for a door, an entrance door. Doesn't make sense to have such a huge building and one cannot go inside. So one is kept forever outside. There is no going 
inside of this sutra. It's kind of a huge stone, no entrance, nothing inside, but maybe something which makes it holy or sacred, like your ashes, or sometimes some scripture. So interesting the way that the awakened mind of the Buddha is represented by your huge stone. A Christian mystic, very well known, Master Eckhart once said that if you say about God that he is a stone, you are closer to the truth than if you say he is love. That's because people can be mistaken and believe that love is God, but nobody is going to make a mistake and believe that a stone is God or God is a stone. So you are closer to the truth when you say that God is a stone than if you say his love. <coughs> so we'll follow his line and say, well, Nirvana is a stone. Then we'll be closer to the truth than if we said it is a situation of suffering or whatever. So let's start by imagining that the Nirvana is a stone. So now we know what it is, let's see how to get there. Since the nirvana is expressed in different ways, situation of suffering, the end of sorrow, situation of all defilement, one may try to follow a path to reach this ultimate aim, to reach the cessation of all defilement, all confusion, all negative aspect of ourselves. And in this attempt to reach this ultimate state, one will go along and try to bring the cause and conditions that slowly will help us to go closer and closer to the end exactly how we do in daily life when we want to bring something which is not here or produce it or create it then we'll get the proper tools gather the, the material needed and then we'll bring the proper action that may lead to the arising or the creation or the production of what we intend to create or produce That usually how we can bring about something which is not present actually by being very skillful in gathering causes and conditions. We may see our practice of meditation of spirituality in the same line, trying to gather the cause and condition that we may help to bring the result that we are wishing for.
So we go back we are to me. I will take a very simple way of following a path. Not the only way, just one example. So we may see obstacles to a very pure state of mind, like being thoughts, emotions, negative reactions. Then think that those, the presence of those states of thoughts, emotions, and reactions, negative reactions, they are not proper to the production of a pure state of mind. They are like weeds in a garden. So we'll try to push them away, that we can clean the garden and uh, take care of the sprout, not anymore having too many weeds. In the practice of meditation, then if we are following first the path of getting those thoughts and emotions away, pushing them away, then we'll practice samatha, the practice of calming the mind. By this first step then we'll push away desire, aversion, agitation, sleepiness and so on, by placing our mind in a very protected spot, in a very precise spot. We place our mind there that it may be well protected from aversion, desire, agitation, sleepiness, doubt and so on. By bringing the mind to this proper place, then slowly all the other obsessions will not be able to come and disturb the mind. The mind at this time will be free of those disturbances because we have found a very protected place. We are creating it within ourselves, choosing anything that we could place a mind on, could choose the body. Just keeping the mind, that in mind, we could close our eyes and just keep that in mind, excluding all the other perceptions that the mind become quiet. Then we, by that, are pushing away, getting rid of thoughts, emotions, like anger, desire, and so on. Then the mind, going deeper, in a quieter state, may experience rapture, belief, any kind of very subtle experiences. Yet we'll see that is not, that is still a distraction in the mind, that is still some experiences then maybe it's not appropriate to keep them or to be concerned with them. So we let go of them by not regarding, not being so much interested in them, that finally they will disappear. Rapture, please, investigation and so on will just disappear. And the mind is becoming to a, even a quieter place, a place where there is less and less obsession. Going even deeper, again we'll go into maybe just placing the mind, not some anymore on something gross or on some very subtle state of mind, but just maybe on the space, just concentrating on space, including all other experiences. 
and the mind seems to come to even a quieter, less disturbed place, much more pure place. And seeing that even space is slightly gross, we may get to something deeper and more certain, consciousness. And the mind will just rest in this experience of consciousness in a deeper way, and there is even less distraction, less obstacle within the mind. And going further, we may just maybe concentrate on nothingness. And one step further, on neither consciousness, or neither perception, nor non-perception. So at this time, nothing is left. Or we may imagine another way of practicing, bringing condition, cause and condition, trying to build up a state of mind, which will be a pure state of mind, a free state of mind, by many other means, subtle means. I have just chosen one line, the, the line on bringing concentration to the mind. So we may imagine that when there is neither perception nor non-perception, there is no more any problem. Either following this path of concentration, or following any actually other path of bringing cause and condition to reach one state of mind, that we may say that is freedom, because there is no more disturbances. So it is the way that one will reach ultimate freedom by being very skillful in bringing the cause and condition and getting rid of all the obstacles. That by the skill that will develop, finally just be able to bring about a pure state of freedom. In practice, of course, with much diligence and very simply. So when we will be burned, we will put our ashes in the stupa. So in such a state that we may bring about by condition condition, this way described, or even some more subtle ways, will that be the condition? Will that state reach at the end of path, or maybe that on one more subtle, will that then be the condition? put in a very simple way, if we can get rid of samsara, then there will be only nirvana. Get rid of all the difficulties and conditions, then there will be nirvana. So trying to be skillful in this getting rid of all the confusion, all these aspects that we call samsara. then nirvana will be reconditioned. But we may wonder if it is really the unconditioned. If we consider that 
Nirvana is the opposite side of samsara, then we may immediately wonder that Nirvana is something very conditioned because it requires the absence of the other. At this time, Nirvana is completely conditioned by the necessity of the absence of samsara. So it's just another conditioned phenomenon. If we say it is unconditioned, then it cannot be the opposite of something else. Because if it is the opposite of something else, then it is conditioned by this something else. If the unconditioned or the unborn that we try to reach, if that can be reached by following a path, by accumulating cause and condition, the causes and conditions then will condition the result. So whatever we may try to follow, very simple way I explain, or more subtle way of practicing, whatever we practice, the cause and condition cannot lead to something which is not conditioned. Cause and condition will give a result which will be depending on those cause and conditions. It will be at the beginning, it will be born, it will be not the unborn. So we may wonder that if we are practicing something, cause and condition, however subtle, that will not lead to something which is not conditioned. So practicing a path, bringing the cause and condition, doesn't lead to the unconditioned, but not practicing anything doesn't lead also to the unconditioned. So now we are left with either practicing something which does not lead or not practicing something which anyway does not lead either. Just in a dead end. It's very important to know what we are practicing and, and why. If we believe that by cause and condition we will reach the condition, and if it is not possible, then it's better to start to be aware of that. Yet stopping practicing will not help either. gave a quotation the other day saying that from a Christian mystic he said that if God is known by a means you will know the means but not God <coughs> now I have another quotation from Vimalakirti and he said the Dharma is without acceptance or rejection he who holds on to things or let go of them, is not interested into the Dharma, but he is interested into holding and letting go. 
So how to go beyond this dead end? As practicing does not help, not practicing does not help either. Well, if we take something slightly similar to the situation we are facing here, which is the consideration of death. It seems that when one tries to consider death, there is also something which seems impossible. And Freud said that when somebody dies, we look at this person as if this person had succeeded in do some magical trick because how is it possible to get out of life and existence? There is something which that one cannot understand. To go from existing to non-existing, there is something which does not work. There is always a shock when we hear about the death of somebody, even if it is not somebody that we like so much. But there is a shock because it's like if our belief system is suddenly put into a situation where it does not seem to be so much true anymore. If people who are alive can die, then are they really alive? Something is slightly shocking there. But I, this French writer I have quoted a few times, expressed that in an interesting way. He said, death betrayed the imposture of reality. Death revealed the imposture of reality. If death is true, reality, life, cannot be as true as we imagine. Something is wrong. So when we try to consider death, maybe it is not so much that we will think about life and get a much more sophisticated view about life that suddenly we can come out to a conclusion that it is death without any contradiction. But is it not that if we reverse the point of view and start by considering the certainty of death or the actuality of death and from this life try to consider life then at this time that may bring a new way not of attuning death with life but on the contrary to attune our, our view of life with that of death then we may not hold anymore on to a life which is so strongly, truly existing because that will contradict the truth of death and the fact of death which cannot be negated. So looking from <coughs> the angle of death at life, we see that life lose some of its real, concrete aspect. And from that point of view, suddenly they are not any more contradictory. One is not anymore the impossibility of the other. We may understand how, in the relative existence of life, death is already there, as one aspect of this process. So we have reversed, not taken the life point of view to try to understand death, but we have taken death as a point of view and try to understand life, how to be able to join them together, to go beyond their contradiction.
Now what about if we tried not anymore to <coughs> follow a path trying to reach to the unconditioned? But if we did the same reverse and tried to understand the path from the point of view of the unconditioned? If we took the third truth to understand the fourth one and not the fourth one to reach to the third one, then at this time maybe a new light may be brought to the practice. If we take the point of view of the third noble truth, the truth of separation, of the unconditioned, of the unborn, so what does it mean then, leaving that in mind with respect to our practice? We have to the practice in this life of the condition of something which is not causing anything, something which is not produced, something which is outside of causality, something which is outside of time, outside of any characteristic, outside of any grasping. From this slide then, if we imagine that our practice is not a causal practice, our practice does not lead anywhere, then our practice is seen as something which has no consequence. If it has no consequences, it cannot be good or bad, because good or bad will be with respect to its possibility to bring a result or not. The practice then, being beyond causality, is completely useless. Does not lead anywhere. Because it's not on time. Does not exist in time. If we fall into everything in time, we are taking the other side, the point of view of following a causal path to reach to some uncausal end. So the practice seen in this respect is beyond causality, beyond time, beyond consequences, therefore it's completely useless. Now one may wonder then what is the use of a useless practice? But if one asks a question like that, it means that one is looking from the point of view of causality. If you are asking what is the use of a useless practice, it means that you are looking for some causality, for some effect. Now we are stepping suddenly to the reverse point of view. Can we stay with this point of view of the noble, third noble truth? Is useless. 
doesn't lead anywhere, doesn't condition anything. The practice is not subjected to any result, to any consequence, to good or bad. Then the practice is freedom already. Then the practice does not lead to freedom. It is freedom. You're not going from the practice to somewhere else. When the practice gets rid of all the notion of causality, conditioning, of direction, of time, then the practice becomes freedom itself. Then the practice doesn't come for the sake of freedom, but it is the expression of freedom itself. that in a strange way. So we see that the nirvana consists in an impossible leap over, an uncrossable abyss, because it has always already been crossed. That's not to say that we should stop practice, of course. But rather not subject our practice to any aim or to any result. Not hoping that by causality we reach something which is outside of causality. By pushing and pulling, then we'll be able to finally get to a place which is not conditioned by this pushing and pulling. There is another small account. Of Vimalan Kirti. Many Bodhisattva ask to speak about non-duality and each one comes and gives a very nice definition of non-duality. While the last one is Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, who of course will say something even greater. And he said to the other Bodhisattva, he said, all your explanations are themselves dualistic. To know no one teaching, to express nothing, to indicate nothing, that is the entrance into non-duality. So it's very clear. To know no one teaching, to express nothing, to indicate nothing. That is the entrance into non-duality. Then, since he is a guest of Vimalakirti, he is turning towards Vimalakirti and said, Well, can you give us your point of view on non-duality? And Vimalakirti just doesn't say anything. Then Manjushri is very happy and praised the wisdom of Vimalakirti for not saying anything as the best way of expressing non-duality.
Well, so we may see that maybe the nirvana is not a soul. But neither is it anything else. Not making anything of it. So we may stay in silence for a few minutes or Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.